0: If you have a Bible, uh, if you'd open it with me to Acts chapter 20. To wrap up the chapter this morning, Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders in a city called Miletus. Now, Paul is intending to return to Jerusalem because he's been on this journey, the third missionary journey that we see in the book of Acts, uh, and as he wrapped that up, he wanted to get there by Pentecost, hopefully. We don't know if he made it there or not. Pretty tight time schedule. Looked at that last week. Uh, but he decided that he needed to make a stop at Miletus. Now, Miletus, it once was a formidable city. It, it, now it was Pastor Prime. Uh, it was on the western coast of Asia Minor. Uh, and it was sort of a, uh, uh, in, on the outskirts of Ephesus which was a large city of about a quarter million people. So he wanted to avoid going directly to Ephesus because he would be pressed for a longer visit than he had time for. He was well known. He had spent three years there, and he decided that he really just wanted to spend time with the guys that were leading the church or the churches in that city. So, uh He summons the elders from the church and they come down about 30 miles to meet with him there. Uh, And he began his dialogue by reaching back. He reminds them, he looks uh, at at the the manner in which he had lived from the time that he had arrived. He said that he had lived essentially uh, in humility and and come as a servant. He, He didn't come to Ephesus throwing his weight around like the Jewish leaders did. They liked their position and their titles and all of that. Uh, but he'd come as a servant of Christ. And he came reminding them of the costs that were involved in fulfilling God's call upon his life, and by extension, now their lives. There'd been many trials, many tears along the way, and uh, mainly due to the plotting of the Jews, we're told, uh, who were continually standing against him and, uh, and against the gospel. They did not like... Uh, the fact these Jews, they have been steeped in Judaism and, by, and in the law of Moses all their lives. And now this guy's coming in and saying, that doesn't count. It's no longer going to be on the basis of obedience to the law. It's going to be on the basis of God's grace, not just for Jews, but for anybody who would come. And that drove them nuts. <laughs> they couldn't handle it. So they stood against him. And, but despite the continuing opposition... Uh, he had faithfully taught them. He held nothing back, we're told. Uh, He saw to it that they understood the message that he'd been called and commissioned by Christ himself to proclaim. The message of salvation, now offered to Jew and Gentile alike, on the basis, what we looked at last week, of repentance towards God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. The Siamese twins talked about that you don't separate those of the New Testament. So during his three-year stay in Ephesus, that message had spread throughout the region. Uh, It had gone wide throughout all of Asia Minor. Many had been impacted uh, and and had turned from their pagan, idolatrous ways to Christ. They had converted to Christianity. Uh, Remember, we looked at the book burning in Ephesus, and we looked at the the fact that the the silversmiths were losing their business and and there was this this great move of God that was taking place in that city and throughout that region. No doubt many of the elders were among those who had turned from the old ways, the the Greek mythology and the Greek gods and all of that that they followed. And now, uh, God had raised them up to be overseers of the church. So, As we begin this week with verses 22 and 23, we're going to see that Paul pivots. See, he's been talking about his past, and now he's going to go to discussing his present circumstances. Verse 22, he says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. How'd that be for a message from God? <laughs> he's he's very certain that trouble is ahead. So when he speaks of being bound in the Spirit, uh, he's, he, the word bound there is a really strong word in the original language. It's the same way as if you see somebody that is arraigned for a crime and they're bound over for trial. It's the same kind of thing. It means that they are, that that is going to happen. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not something that, uh, that, that there's any choice over. And, and so the conviction in his heart was so strong that what Paul is saying is that he can't not go to Jerusalem. He has to do this. The Holy Spirit, has, he's bound in the Spirit. He's got to take this, he's got to see it through. Even though he knows that trouble, chains, await him. The other thing, too, is evidently this conviction wasn't new. And we don't know if other people had been speaking into Paul's life prophetically along the way, or if the Holy Spirit had been bearing witness to him along the way. But he says, look, this isn't something that just came up. This is something that's been with me, been in me for some time. Uh, so either way, we don't know. Again, we don't know if it was others or if it was, it was the Holy Spirit himself, but Paul was convinced, uh, and he intended to head to Jerusalem regardless of the cost or the risk, great risk. So I also, yeah, I don't think that Paul thought that this was the end of the line for him uh, by going, even though he knew that it was going to be dangerous, because in Romans 15, he he mentions that he intends, after he delivers the, the gift that he had been collecting from the Gentile churches that he's going to take to Jerusalem, he mentions that after he does that, he wants to head for Spain. So uh, we're not sure exactly if he ever made it to Spain. Some say that he did. Many say that he didn't. But that was his intent. Verse 24, he says, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy. In the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now I mentioned this to somebody as one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament this week. And they laughed. And they said, you always say that. (laughs) Well, okay, so my favorite passage just happens to be the one I'm studying at that moment. I'll give you that. (laughs) But folks, this is exciting stuff. I mean, if, if, if studying God's word doesn't light your fire, <laughs> you've got wet wood, <laughs> you know. It really is a matter of just having a hunger for God's word. So, yeah, it, and I may say that again, I'll, wherever I'm studying, it's like, this is my favorite. Well, this week. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, but he says, none of these things move me what he's telling these Ephesian elders that he is undeterred. Uh, the, he, the threat of imprisonment, the threat of unknown perils, which are out there ahead, he says, look, I understand all that. That doesn't move me. That doesn't take me away from what I believe God has called and commissioned me to do. So in doing that, think about it, he's placing far greater value on what he does for Christ, than the value he places upon his own life. He's saying, look, that's, that, that has a higher place in my life, in my heart, than, than my own safety, than, than, than keeping my hide from being harmed. And so he says, the other thing about that, he says, nor do I count my life dear to myself that I may finish my race with joy. Interesting. Interesting. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul, he's writing to Timothy. At that time, he was the pastor of this church in Ephesus. And he would prophetically warn of the days in which we now live. Uh, and in 2 Timothy 3.1, he says, But know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. So how are they perilous? He goes on, he says, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Tell me if that isn't a commentary on the world in which we now live. Isn't it interesting that hatred comes as a result of spreading the knowledge of God's grace uh, to people who are perishing and because of unbelief don't care? I, I, that to me is mind boggling. I've been walking with the Lord for about 40 years and And it still boggles my mind when I see people push back so hard that they want to cause harm to the church or to God's people because of the truth and the purity and the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. In light of all that, Paul is willing to lay down his life in attempting to reach them for Christ. Verse 25, and indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Now, we don't know exactly how Paul knew that, uh, that this time at Ephesus was, was it. He would never see these men again. But in the greater context, remember, uh, we clearly see that Paul is being led of the Holy Spirit here. He's relating that the Spirit had revealed that chains and imprisonment were ahead. He's revealing that he can't not go to Jerusalem. And therefore, I think it's really easy to deduce. uh, And it makes sense that the Holy Spirit revealed this to him as well. This is it. Uh, Now, some scholars, just as a side note, some scholars piece together a fourth missionary journey, and they do that from Paul's letters. And I've read about that, and I've studied it, but that's by inference, it's not by reference. So uh, I'm going to just leave that there. I mean, if that was so, then he did possibly see them again. But regardless, in Paul's mind at this moment, He is strongly convinced this is goodbye. This is it. And you can tell that just by the nature of his comments because this was an emotional moment for sure. But he has a practical purpose in it as well. That's why he wanted to stop at Miletus and to have this talk with these leaders of the church from Ephesus. Verse uh, 26, he says, therefore, now when you see the word therefore, you say, what's it? Therefore... He says, therefore, because you'll see me no more, you'll no longer be able to see me, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Interesting. So when Paul says that he's he's innocent of the blood of all men, he's using a Jewish idiom, which is it's a figure of speech that has in this case, its origins all the way back with the prophet Ezekiel. All right. Now, an example of an idiom in our day is if I if if, if I looked at say I looked at Patrick I said Patrick I've got my eye on you. That doesn't mean I'm going to follow Patrick around with one eye open, staring at him and, and you know do all that. That's no. That's because that's an idiom. What it means is I'm watching, and I'm not. But you know what I mean. So the, it, it's called idiomatic speech, and, and so when when Paul uses this idiom, he's not saying, and I've heard people come up with all kinds of weird legalistic explanations for this, like, oh, you don't share the gospel, their blood's on your hands. No, that's not what he's saying. I was talking with uh, Doreen, uh, visited, she and her, her daughter at the hospital last week, and, and I was talking with her about this, and, and we were talking about, if it's, if, she said, you know, well, if you see somebody standing on the train tracks, you don't, Push them out of the way because there's a law that you're breaking if you don't. Push them out of the way because you care. <laughs> and Paul is not saying, I, you know, I am violating the law, some law of God if I don't do this. But he's saying, I am compelled to do, to do this because of love. It's not, it's not punitive. It's not because I have to. It's because I want to. It's because I choose to. And he says, look, I have shared all of this with you and I'm innocent of their blood. <laughs> be a to run that up to the end and say, oh, the only reason I come here every Sunday is so that I can be innocent of your blood. <laughs> That's not what I'm doing. So the, but the point is, in all of this, he understood the great responsibility uh, that had been entrusted to him in taking the gospel of Christ to these people. He got that. He understood that. He also understood the grave consequences uh, for those who would reject it. Because there are grave consequences. Eternity is at stake. Period. You either receive Christ, you either belong to him, or you don't. So, what he's essentially saying to these men is he had fulfilled... Uh, his responsibility by holding nothing back from them and giving them the full counsel of God. And making that statement to these leaders, he's shifting now that responsibility to them. Think about it. He's saying, look, I've spent three years. I've not held anything back. I have done nothing but, but bring the gospel of Christ to you and to the people He taught in that school of Tyrannus during that time, probably five hours a day in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day. And and he he had given the full counsel of God. It would be up to them now to be faithful to the sacred trust as they take responsibility now uh, for relating the gospel of Christ in its fullness to others and folks that's the way it has gone from one generation to the next down through the centuries the gospel has been communicated in this way it's not just for elders in the church I, I was talking to a friend many years ago and he said you know john i'm not i'm not worried about what i don't know i concern myself with what i do know and there is a responsibility that comes Often in my life, I've been challenged because it's uncomfortable bringing the love of Christ to someone who has rejected. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's risky to say, Look, if you don't turn, you're going to die in your sins. And yet, do I love you enough to risk? Paul is saying, Yeah. I loved you enough to risk, and he had paid a price. We'll look at that in a bit. What he's saying to these men is now, I am innocent of these people's blood, and now I'm transferring that responsibility to you. Faithfully carry out the call of God upon your life. He says in verse 28: Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So, when he says take heed, uh, just to expand on that word a little bit, it means to be vigilant and to be in a continual state of readiness. Take heed. In leading the flock, they must first tend to the details of their own lives. He says, take heed to yourselves in order to effectively tend to the details in the lives of others. And that is leadership 101. Uh, in, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he expands on this principle. And, and he gives a rhetorical question there in 1 Timothy 3.5. He says, if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Very interesting. That doesn't mean that, and I've taught the pastoral epistles before, it's not a checklist. But there are things to aspire towards. There are things that that God looks for in a man or a woman when he raises them up to lead others. Uh, In this case, raising men up to lead the church. It's also very clear from verse 28 that it's the Holy Spirit who makes an overseer. Uh, it's not man. This isn't a work of man. And, and folks, I am very careful about the manner in which I raise up leaders that the, I, because the, the Bible says to lay hands on no man quickly. It takes time. It takes, I'm blessed. We have some wonderful elders in our church And they're men who are sold out for Christ. They're not men who have their own agenda. They're men who love you and are committed to your good and to your welfare and to the furthering of the gospel and to the teaching of the word of God. Checking all the right boxes. Interesting too. I, I think about that with leaders. And, and again, in my years in, in church leadership, uh, I first went onto a church board. I think it was in 1987 or something. It was a long time ago. I've seen some things. One of the things I've seen is, is and it's what the Bible talks about. He talks about somebody who has a godly aspiration to lead others. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a good work that he desires to do. And there is such a thing as a godly aspiration. But there is also another motive, and the Bible talks about that, called selfish ambition. Folks, they can look just the same on the surface. They can look exactly the same. Totally, completely different motivation of the heart. With each one. At the end of the day, that's what it's about the motivations of a man's heart. And that takes time to show up. Therefore, I'm careful. I mentioned last week that I thoroughly get that this is not my church and you are not my sheep. <laughs> I, and that is so freeing for me. I am an under shepherd to the great shepherd, the arch Poimen is the word shepherd in the Bible, uh, or the word pastor in the book of Ephesians. That's, it's the word poimen or poimenos. And what that means is a shepherd. But when we're talking about Jesus, he is referred to as the great shepherd, the arch shepherd. And so if a pastor understands his place, if a leader or an overseer in the church understands their place, they understand that they're not the end of it. It's like the Roman centurion. I, I'm a man of authority, but I'm also a man under authority. Jesus walked away saying, I've not seen such great faith in anybody in Israel when he said that. Very important concepts, principles to understand. The, the bottom line is, is you are blood-bought. It's a great privilege, a blessing uh, to serve Christ as an overseer. Now, Paul warns in verse 29, he he begins to warn them about what's ahead. Uh, He says, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. So in verse 29, he speaks of trouble coming from outside the church. In verse 30, we'll see that he speaks of trouble coming from inside. Uh, but he talks about, he uses the same metaphor that Jesus did in Matthew seven fifteen, where Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So the, the term wolves here, it, it, what it denotes is, is enemies of the flock. These are false, hypocritical, dangerous leaders, and they're out there. So the question becomes, uh, now, (laughs) I'm not suggesting that we go on a wolf hunt, okay? (laughs) Wolves tend to show up. But the question that we should be asking is, well, how do you tell the difference between a wolf in sheep's clothing and a sheep? I'm glad you asked. And I think the answer is simple. Because we find the answer in observing what they eat. Sooner or later, they will eat. Sheep eat grass. Wolves eat sheep. And that's really the bottom line. Notice Paul doesn't say after my departure, savage wolves might come in. No, he says they will. Because we have a real adversary. And and, and we and and the church of, of God, the, the people that are, are truly putting forth the gospel are definitely on his list. But don't make any bones about it. Trouble comes. I don't want to sound arrogant, but I have and I will continue to protect the flock when wolves show up. It's only a matter of time. He wants these men to be on guard and to do what they need to do to protect the flock against them. Uh, In verse 30, uh, trouble from within, he says, also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things, draw away disciples after themselves. Now, it's been said that the most dangerous enemies which the church has had have been nurtured in its own bosom. People coming, raising up from inside. I think that this is interesting. Again, uh, you know, (laughs) Jesus is very clear. He says it's not up to you to try to separate the sheep from the goats. Not up to you to try to separate the wheat from the weeds. He says, I'll take care of that. So so I'm not, (laughs) the last thing in my mind is I want to inspire us going around kind of trying to figure out who's, who's the one, you know. No, that's not it. We're to be aware. We're to be discerning. We're to trust him. When you're talking about a false leader, this isn't somebody who is repulsive. This isn't somebody that everybody's put off by. It's really the opposite. Usually where a false leader gets traction is because that's somebody that has charisma. That's somebody who presents well. Somebody who can hold an audience. uh, Our enemy is very crafty. The problem isn't in how they present because, again, often present well. The problem is in what they present. In human terms, it might look good on the surface. However, at the end of the day, it comes out. Like I said, bulls eat sheep. When people are being damaged, uh, and, and that's been a, a policy of mine for as long as I've been a pastor, is that, you know, I've just got, I, I want to have a lot of grace. But when people are being injured, that's where I believe that it's incumbent upon me to step in and to handle things. Because I, the last thing I want to do is to see people injured, see people driven from the church by somebody that has got evil intentions or somebody who is, is causing a real problem. Take it seriously. Another thing about that, In this generation, there is an extreme uh, lack of biblical literacy among professing Christians that people don't know God's word. That leaves them exceptionally vulnerable to being drawn away. The Bible talks about every wind of doctrine. People coming, they have itching ears and and every wind of doctrine that comes along grab a hold of that and write it out, sometimes to their great detriment. And I see this as something to guard against in our fellowship as well as in any other. I also see that there's a huge problem, and it's, I don't see it here because we're a small fellowship. But it, I look out and I see that our country, you know, we don't have royalty in the United States. We have celebrity. And there is a celebrity culture out there that is sickening. Ah, Just because somebody's well known, just because they have a large following, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that the doctrine is pure. And there are good, large churches, don't get me wrong. But there are some big movements out there that are so far off, I'm weary of flashy shows with celebrity pastors that emulate pop culture. I'm weary of churches where entertainment is called worship, but it's not. I'm weary of teaching where every Bible verse becomes a point of departure in putting, putting forth some doctrine of man. Folks, there's a lot of deception outside the church, and there's also a load of deception inside. And I would not be being faithful to my call if I didn't warn you. Be careful. Make sure that whatever's being put forth from the pulpit lines up with this. Otherwise, you could be drawn away as well. And the reason that that's attractive is because it it appeals to the natural man, it appeals to our flesh. And when those things are used by unscrupulous leaders, they draw people away from the purity, the simplicity, the beauty of the gospel of Christ. That's why we teach the Bible. And I'm not, we're not like the perfect church. And I'm not trying to make everybody look bad so we look okay. Don't, don't, that's not where I'm coming from at all. But we teach God's word here. Verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter, book by book. Because in giving people the full counsel of God, as Paul says here, we're safe. This is job security, too. I don't ever run out of material. But (laughs) the point is, the point is, as long as we stay centered in God's divinely inspired word, we're going to do okay. Verse 31, he says, therefore watch. Another strong word. And remember that for three years I didn't cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now the word watch here, it means to stay awake. It means to be in a state of continual readiness. He's talking like Ezekiel being the watchman on the wall. Because that's what that thing, that that idiom that Paul used earlier in this passage That Ezekiel had been called to be the watchman. He was the one that was to stand on the wall and to watch. If the enemy was advancing, that he would go and he would tell the people, tell the, the soldiers to be ready for battle. That if he didn't do that, their blood was on his hands. If he did do that, then he was innocent of their blood. That was that whole thing that Paul is using in that idiom. What he's saying here, he's not saying that their blood would be on their hands, but he says, look... Part of what you are called to do is to be watchful. Part of what you are called to do, elders, leaders, overseers, what he, who he's addressing here, is to be watchful, to be in that state of readiness. <laughs> I, used to, uh, I used to go to baseball games a lot. And one of the things, the position that I would just thought was the, the, the coolest position was the shortstop. That guy is like a loaded spring. I mean, that if the ball was hit, he's either jumping that way or he's jumping this way. It's a line drive going out, you know, and, and, and he is on it. That's kind of what he's talking about here. He's saying, look, you need to be ready to respond. You need to be in a place of watchfulness. In the military new conscripts are taken through a process called basic training. If you are uh, a former military, God bless you, thank you for your service, and you remember basic as a way that new soldiers were taught to deal with the fundamental issues that come with military service. Now, in a sense, in in sort of a similar way, Paul is equipping the Ephesian elders here with a sort of basic training. He's talking to them about how to guard against false teachers and troublemakers in the church. How would they spot trouble coming from outside? How would they spot trouble coming from within? He's saying, look, you need to be watchful. You need to be awake. And you need to be in a state of continual readiness. This is a divine charge. In a word, they were to be tenacious with regard to the things of God and the people of God. Tenacity. And he'd spent three years warning them through tears there would be a cost to that tenacity. There, would certainly, there had been for him. Uh, think about it. In, in Paul wrote his second letter to the church at Corinth, to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians, uh, on this, his third journey, shortly before the events we're reading about here. Remember, he came from Macedonia and came back down to Miletus, and while he was in Macedonia, he wrote back to the church at Corinth because he had hooked back up with Titus. Talked about that a couple weeks ago. Well, in that letter, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four 24 through 28, he elaborates on the physical and emotional costs that he had endured to this point. And they weren't small. In verse 24, he says, From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils in waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren... Talking about that here, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness, sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. He says, and on top of that, and besides those things, what comes upon me daily is my deep concern for all the churches. He paid a price. Verse thirty-two. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance inheritance among all those who are sanctified, being set apart or cleansed. That's what sanctified means. Now, I want you to notice something. He doesn't commend them to other human leaders. No. Even though Timothy would later be called to lead the church at Ephesus, he doesn't say, "I, I now... Brothers, I commend you to Timothy. He doesn't do that. He commends them to God. He also commends them to God's divinely inspired word. And this is a powerful testimony, folks, to the sufficiency of the scriptures in our lives. He commends them to God. He commends them to his word. That's because this thing isn't driven by men. And thank God it's not. Here's the principle. It's the spirit of God taking the word of God, driving it into the hearts of the people of God. That's how it works. Yeah, you say, well, how can we come and we listen to you, pastor, every Sunday? Well, he calls that the foolishness of preaching. In other words, it's like my job is just nullified because I'm simply... I love to tell you guys look, I didn't write the paper. I'm just throwing it in your yard. I'm a divinely called and appointed paper boy. That's it. Because you don't do business with me, you do business with Him. You do business with what His Word puts forth. And that's exciting, that's glorious. What's the result of all that? In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes uh, later on, this is 10 years after these things, he writes back from jail, from prison. He's chained to a Roman guard. He writes to this church at Ephesus, and he's praying for the Ephesian church. He says, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. And here it is. That you may know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's one of my favorite passages too. (laughs) Verse 33. He says, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. Uh, So as he's drawing his message to a close here, Paul, once again, he sets the example of his own life and ministry before them. He says, look, this is how I have conducted myself. There wasn't any material gain. Uh, Again, I I am sickened when I hear of guys saying, you know, I just needed a new jet. (laughs) God told me I had to get a loan, so I bought a yacht. (laughs) It's just craziness out there. There wasn't any material gain for the Apostle Paul. He essentially was a poor man. It says here that he not only supported himself, but he supported the other people that were with him. Why? Because he wanted to remain blameless. He had a lot of detractors, and he knew that, that they would be out there you know, stirring it up. Oh, yeah, well, he's just in it for the money. Talked about that last week. Verse 35, I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it's more blessed to give than receive. So once again, Paul's closing remarks uh, here, we see the mind of Christ manifest in him. What do you mean by that? Kingdom authority is about being servant-hearted, and Jesus is our great example of that. Kingdom authority is about being other-centered, and again, Jesus is the great example that we have. You know, it's not just a, a, a tagline that we use here, when, because our church's tagline is that we're learning to think like Jesus. That's truly our desire. That's our goal. And what Paul is doing here is he's thinking like Jesus. He's saying, look, you've got to understand that part of what you're called to do is to support the weak, to come alongside those who are less fortunate, to come alongside, understand there's a principle in this, it's more blessed to give than receive. And they're the polar opposite of what drives this world. They're the polar opposite of, well, how can I gain advantage over you in order to accomplish what best serves me? I see that all the time in the business world. He concludes his talk with these men with quoting the Lord Jesus and saying it's more blessed to give than receive. Uh, Now, I want you to notice something, too. Those letters are in red. I put them in red on the slide, uh, and they're in red in my Bible, and rightfully so. Even though they're not quoted anywhere else in the scripture, this is the only place you find them, as Paul quotes them. However, in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 21, as John concludes his, his writing, he says that there are many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. And this is just one of them. Jesus said and did a lot of things that are not recorded for us. And so is there, is there veracity? Is, is, is this authentic when Paul says that Jesus said it's more good? But of course it is. And they should be red letters. He had been educated by Jesus himself. Verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Now we can only imagine, I, I think about this, this tender moment. Gathered with these men that he had, they, they had served together. They had been through a lot together. He knows that this is the end of the line as far as their earthly relationship. We can only imagine the words of this final humble prayer. Yeah. As his men knelt down together and lifted these things up to the Lord. Verse 37, and they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. Tearful goodbye. Powerful passage. As we close this morning, I have uh, three questions. The first is this. What moves you? What moves you? In the face of great opposition, uh, the Apostle Paul was stubbornly, steadfast about the course of his life. A prayer of my heart is being transparent as I would be less motivated by the cares of this world and more in tune with Jesus, my Lord. Why? Because I can't serve both. I can't serve my own interests, my own desires, my own agenda, and serve Christ at the same time. It doesn't mean that I am locked in a closet and I have this lousy life. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what moves me? He says, "None of these things move me. I don't. Nor do I count my life dear to myself." That's a powerful statement. In Matthew six twenty four, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. And he's not just talking about money. It's, it's, you can't serve both. So who's on the throne of my heart? What moves me? It's a matter of the will. Second question is: Do you understand joy? Interesting. He talks about I, I want to finish my race with joy. In his swan song, in Second Timothy, he says, "I've finished my race." You've got to understand that joy is not the same as happy. Happy is driven by circumstances. I either have circumstances that are favorable and I'm a happy guy. Or I have circumstances that are not so good. And I'm not happy at all. But it's possible to have joy in the midst of really tough circumstances. We see that with Paul. Paul. He owned it when he said, look, I want to finish my race with joy. We looked at the things he went through. That didn't mean he was happy about it. I I am not happy about getting my teeth drilled at the dentist. It's just not part of it. But I can have a deep and abiding joy because joy is not communicated to me by my circumstances. Joy is the fruit of God's Spirit. And as God speaks joy into my life, as as I release the things in my life that are so troublesome, I'm able to experience a deep and abiding sense that, you know what? It's going to work out. You know what? I can finish my race with joy even though I've got tough things to deal with in my life. And I know there are people in this room that are dealing with tough things. Take heart. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of God. Finally, it's more blessed to give than receive. And no, this is not a pitch for your pastor to get you to roll up your sleeves and help more. <laughs> You can if you want. (laughs) No, this principle runs far deeper than giving our time and our talents and our treasures. I like that little ditty. I mean, because those are the things that we give. They're good things, to be sure. But I firmly believe that what God is after is the attitude of the heart that drives those things you got to get deeper than that. you got to get below the activity and say, what's the heart? What he's talking about is an attitude of the heart when he says, more blessed to give than receive. The natural man, as they mentioned, we're driven to amass wealth, to live for pleasure, to build his or her, her life around their own self-centered appetites, desires. And, and to one degree or another, that's all of us, just to be fair. Understand the kingdom of God is driven by the polar opposite. By giving my life away, I gain it. By becoming other centered as opposed to self centered, my life is enriched. So when he talks about being, it's more blessed to give than to receive, understand it's not, a, again, it's not a checklist. How am I doing with the giving? No, it's, it's an attitude of the heart. It, it's, it's, it's a way of being that God, by his Holy Spirit, will build into us if we are willing to die to self and to allow Christ to emerge, to think like him, to understand that he went to that cross for me, to understand that he offers a life that is so rich, but I can't live this life here according to the principles of the world and live for the kingdom at the same time. He says, you know what? There needs to be a death in your family and that needs to be you. Die to those desires. Die to that flesh. Die to that, that, that wants to have position or power or fame or wealth or whatever it is and allow Christ to emerge. That's where victory is found. That's what Paul meant when he said, I've learned the secret of living well, whether I'm abased or I abound. It all has to do with my relationship with Christ. The fullness that he offers. Mind-boggling. Let's pray. Father, as we wrap up this chapter in Paul's Farewell addressed to these elders in Ephesus. There's so much that we can plumb from this. There are so many good lessons that, that we can just dig into and, and take hold of. I pray for each one here, Father. Each one perhaps watching online. or uh, Lord, that, that you would work in us. That, that you would find hearts that are willing to let go. Hearts that are willing to to ask ourselves the question, what moves me? Hearts that are willing to allow your joy to be expressed in tough, tough circumstances. Hearts that are willing to serve, not because we have to, but because we're grateful and because we want to, and we want to emulate our Lord. Lord. Father, work in us. We give you permission to plumb the depths of our hearts, to work in us, to to bring about that new man, that new woman, fashioned after the image of Christ. Thank you for pouring your grace out on our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing. I know we're all in process. Thank you for your love. We give ourselves afresh to you. In Jesus' name, amen.